Hello everybody. How are you all doing? I hope you're doing very well. Welcome to the 51st live episode of Ask Abhijit. And it's great to be back with you all. This is one of the best parts of my week to do these live shows and meet you face to face virtually. So today we're going to do a live chat session, live chat Q&A from the live chat that you are putting in the box. And tomorrow we will do a video chat. So today it's all live chat. So let me see who all is there with us today. I can see Shubhankari Thakral, Pradeep Pandey, Neeraj Kumar Singh, Prithvi Ram, Harsh Jain, Ashok Kumar, Nagpuriya, Andy Agni Thanos, Futuristic Angad Sai, Raghav Sharma, Sagnik Banerjee, Chandrabhan Maurya, Divyansh Garg, Sujoy Kumar Ghosh, Yash Biradar, Kiran Raj Golap, Shashank Mishra, Ruchit Hriday, Anchit Rushil, Chiching Dimgal, Neha Martan, A.R. Utsav, Prithvi Ram again, Harshada Pidnekar, Satur Gojo, Divyansh Garg, and so many more people. Bhanu Prakash Shukla, Manish Rathod, A.R. Shashank, Neeraj, and everybody else. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. Thank you for being here. So, what shall we discuss today? As always, it is you, the viewers, who are going to drive this Q&A session. So, ask me your questions. Let's see what questions have already been asked and let us begin with that. Raghav Sharma says, if you support the OIT, the out of India theory, how do you explain the fundamental linguistic differences between North Indian languages and South Indian languages? All right, Raghav, you said there are fundamental linguistic differences. What fundamental linguistic differences do we have? Do you mean the fundamental linguistic differences that the Europeans have told us exist? I mean, it is the Europeans, the British colonizers of India, who classified India's languages in two major groups, the Indo-Aryan languages and the Dravidian languages. Uh, it was the bishop, the Christian missionary, the bishop Robert Caldwell, who studied one language, Tamil, rudimentarily and then on the basis of his fragmentary understanding of one language he created an entire language family out of it called the Dravidian language family and he classified all of southern India's languages into this Dravidian language family which he created and today everybody blindly follows this this dogma every Indian scholar every Indian intellectual every Indian academic professor teacher lecturer and so on and so forth they all blindly follow the dogma created by the bishop robert caldwell well has anybody in india any any genuine linguist tried to understand the languages a priori using first principles analysis instead of going by the accepted dogma of uh, created by bishop robert caldwell no because if you if if you even have a very basic understanding of Southern Indian languages, you will find that there are lots of words, not, there is a significant percentage of these, of the words, of the vocabulary of these Southern Indian languages that actually originates in Sanskrit. Telugu is almost 40 to 50% Sanskrit vocabulary. Kannada, very similar. Tamil has 30% or 40% Sanskrit vocabulary. Malayalam is very Sanskritized and so on and so forth. Tulu, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Every single Southern Indian language has a very significant percentage of Sanskrit origin words and there are many words from these languages that are present in Northern Indian languages as well. 
and so on so you know what it we are taught that everything is black and white north indian and south indian indo aryan versus dravidian and so on but nobody has bothered to do a proper a priori first principles analysis of this in either in the 20th century or in the 21st century we are simply blindly following this dogma which was given to us by our british masters and these are the fundamental linguistic differences that raghav you are speaking about i do not blame you for believing it this is what you have been taught this is what we have all been taught and the education system breaks destroys our our curiosity it it prevents it it makes us lose the ability to think on our own it it destroys the ability of every student to use their own intelligence which they all have and that's why we simply blindly follow everything they're taught and that's what we see here so my answer to this is that yes there are the lang- the linguistic landscape in india is incredibly complex india is the original founders zone of the out of africa migration humans settled in india at least 65 or 70000 years ago and these languages have been evolving right here in the subcontinent for that long a period of time so we are going to have to do a proper a priori linguistic analysis starting from zero if we want to understand what india's linguistics really are where do they originate how many language families do we actually have are these so called dravidian languages and so so called indo aryan languages are they actually a separate language family because we know that genetically we are very much the same indians all of us northern india southern india eastern india western india and so on right so we are very much the same genetically our genetics are 65 70000 years old and i would say that india's linguistics also would be that old so we need to do a proper a priori linguistic analysis we need to stop relying on these 19th century colonial dogmas and therefore i do not agree one bit that there are fundamental linguistic differences between uh, indian languages very in various parts of india there are ov- obviously there's going to be some differences but what is the origin of these differences and more than differences we have similarities i mean how do you explain all the similarities you can't right so that's the thing there is no black and white right or wrong in this what i can tell you is that everything these people have tried to impose upon us is incorrect i want to see an indian institute of fundamental linguistics wherein the brightest young minds of india are brought together and we can have a 20 30 50 year project to uncover the truth about india's linguistics so that's what needs to happen right so i do support the oit the out of india theory it is very well established by now in science in genetics that india is the original out of india out of africa founder zone it is out of the indian subcontinent that humans migrated all across eurasia and eventually to other continents and there were there were even back migrations into africa which is why you find indian origin r1b genetics in the heart of africa as well today so the truth is way more complex than what the than the way it is portrayed we need to start looking at things afresh from a scientific perspective we need to start looking at the actual hard data instead of believing other people's opinions so that's what i would invite all of you to do right let us see some more questions 
Let us see some more questions. What else do we have? Here's an interesting question about us about the about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So Sagnik asks, please tell us about the nature of the wow signal. Was this singular event a real signal? If so, what was its origin? This is a very interesting question. Now, this is something I had read about about a decade or so ago. That uh, we there is this uh, project called the SETI project in in the United States, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and there there are these arrays of uh, radio telescopes that scan the sky and look for interesting radio signals from outer space. Now, radio waves are just a form of electromagnetic radiation. Light is electromagnetic radiation and so on. So they scan the um, they scan the cosmos and look for interesting signals. Now, what's an interesting signal? You know, the, the cosmos, the space, outer space is full of noise in the electromagnetic spectrum. You have all kinds of noise coming from galaxies, uh, noise that's produced by pulsars, by magnetars, uh, by quasars, and various astrophysical objects which give off electromagnetic radiation in, in a variety of frequencies, many of which are radio frequencies. And therefore, when they first found the, the first evidence of, of uh, what was it? Was it pulsars? Pulsars. Pulsars are those uh, very rapidly spinning stars, millisecond pulsars and, and so on. So you found these extraordinarily uh, regular pulses of radio waves, which initially ast astronomers believed that only intelligent beings could produce such signals. But eventually it was found that these are actually uh, astrophysical objects called pulsars and millisecond pulsars and so on. And there are lots of other astrophysical phenomena that give rise to radio waves. So the cosmos is an extremely noisy source, radio source, electromagnetic source. And yet we are searching for certain signals that could only be produced by intelligent life. So signals that don't repeat and there are and, and have certain characteristics. So I think sometime in the 1970s, there was this one signal that was captured and it was incredible. I don't remember exactly what it was like, but uh, it was very unique and it was it, it had the distinct characteristics of a signal that can only be produced by an intelligent uh, being, civilization, so on. So the person who was uh, manning the uh, the night shift in one of those one of these uh, observatories saw this signal and scribbled down "Wow" next to it. Now I'm not sure if it's been adequately explained or not. I do not think it has been adequately explained by any natural phenomenon thus far, and unfortunately, that signal has never repeated itself. So the portion, the place, the the location in the night sky, in the sky where it came from uh, people have been uh, scientists have been trying to scan that that location for a very long period of time and nothing else has ever come out of it now i am not sure if it has been conclusively proven to be something that originated from a natural astrophysical source but it's something which is i don't think they have been able to conclusively prove that so i think as far as i know that it is still not proven or not not determined where what what is the origin of this signal and that's why it is one of the most intriguing and interesting and exciting phases 
uh, episodes of of uh, scientific history, astrophysical, uh, astronomical history, and the history of the search of for, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So uh, I don't have the exact answer as to whether it has been proven to be physical, natural, or extraterrestrial. I think it's still it's still in the superposition of both. But yeah, it's it's a very interesting episode and uh, and they are still scanning the sky for more such signals i mean you may recall uh, there was this uh, a couple of years i mean two or three years ago there was the star that they found which underwent these drastic episodes of dimming and dimming down and brightening up again uh, it was discovered by a researcher by a team of researchers led by tabetha boyayan uh, it was called tabby's star and it was seriously being considered that this could be the dimming, the sudden dimming episodes of the star could be perhaps possibly caused by a megastructure, a, an artificial megastructure, a Dyson sphere of sorts, a Dyson ensemble of, of some kind. So that uh, today it is believed in the past two, three years, they have come to the conclusion, the conclusion that this could have been caused possibly by a swarm of large orbiting bodies, perhaps comets. But even that doesn't seem 100% uh, conclusive. And there are, and they have now discovered some other stars too that, that uh, exhibit such strange, non-regular brightening and darkening episodes. So we are, we are entering an interesting phase of observational astronomy and, and especially the search for extraterrestrial intelligence as our instruments get better as we are able to actually take photographs of planets around other stars, exoplanets and so on, we are going to make more discoveries and maybe we may actually discover something really interesting like the signal of life, the signature of life somewhere else on a non-solar system world. It is certainly possible. So, interesting times. Okay, Karthik Srinivas says, can you please explain the first principles thinking? First principles thinking is when you... Uh, okay, what is first principles thinking? It's when you examine, when you analyze a problem, not on the basis of other people's opinions, but looking at the actual source of the phenomenon. For instance, uh, last week I had a gentleman, a nice guy actually, who asked me about, who was a, a little argumentative. I don't blame him, it's okay. Uh, he was talking about the uh, CAA uh, and the farmers' protests and uh, and all that. And he was saying that uh, I have heard from other sources, other channels, that it is very much anti-farmer and the CAA is also anti-national and so on. So that is an example of, unfortunately, dogmatic thinking. When you are basing your opinions on the product of other people's thinking. So you saw some YouTube videos from two, three channels, and they all say that this is bad for the country. This is anti-farmer. So you believe you believe what they are saying and you form your opinion based on other people's thought processes. That is called dogmatic thinking because dog, dogma means you are using the results, the products of other people's th thoughts. First principles thinking means you ignore what other people are saying 
and you look at the actual farm bill that is the source of the entire controversy you examine the the farmer the the, the new law yourself it is available in the public domain and then you form your own opinion based on the law written down in black and white whether it is good for the farmers or bad for the farmers that is called first principles thinking and again when it comes to uh, science etc first principles thinking is that you take the basics the fundamental laws of nature of mathematics and physics to form your opinions rather than basing your opinions on the opinions of other scientists on the conclusions that other other scientists have made let me give you another example there are right now as of today many uh, i have heard uh, i have seen lots of comments by many of you saying that so and so researcher has determined the date of the mahabharat or the date of the ramayan etc and some of you seem to be very uh, very strongly convinced by that right now here is the fact as of to see here's the the scientific methodology when i do some research and i come to a conclusion i am going to check my research recheck my work recheck my entire process a few times and when i am convinced that i have not made any mistake when that my conclusions my analysis my my calculations are correct then i'm going to make a claim that this is what i have discovered right so this is a claim that i have made now for the claim to be proven it has to be replicated independently by at least two other teams of scientists only when they are able to replicate the same result that i have i have found only then can my claim be said to be proven so if one person does some research for 5 years 10 years 20 years whatever however long it takes and comes to a conclusion it is not proven my friends and if you believe that person and you say this is the date of the mahabharata or the, or the ramayana that is dogmatic thinking it is not first principles thinking because you don't know what process what methodology he or she has used to come to these conclusions and find these dates you are not i would assume an expert in astronomy and in all these astronomical calculations so on what basis are you believing the person i am not i am not by by any means saying that so and so claim is right or so and so claim is wrong or so and so person is good or bad i am not saying any of that i am simply making the fundamental point that you are basing your 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 opinion on something that is not scientific on something that is not proven so that is called dogmatic thinking you just blindly believe what somebody is claiming that has not been proven independently by other researchers yet and therefore it is not proven so so these are some of the ways that these are some of the uh, intellectual fallacies and pitfalls that we have and the the antidote to that is first principles thinking now i don't expect all of you or most of you to have any understanding of astronomy why should you have it it's not your profession it's fine so in that case you should not believe the claim that has been put forth until other researchers are able to corroborate it and then once it is corroborated by at least two teams of researchers then you can believe it so that is the scientific process for instance in 1915 when albert einstein put forth the general theory of relativity no one cared nobody cared only a few years later when it was actually proven when his predictions 
were demonstrably proven, it's only then that he became a celebrity. So one must wait for these claims to be proven. One cannot blindly start believing things. So that is the scientific process. There is the way to think in a scientific manner. And that is first principle thinking by going to the root of the matter instead of relying on other people's opinions. Okay, that was a very long answer. Let's go on to something else. I hope that makes sense. All right, Karan asks, what is meritocracy? Is it better than democracy? And is it even possible? It is certainly possible. It has been, it has existed in the past in India. It has existed in the past in other civilizations, cultures, empires, and so on. It is certainly possible. It is very much a component of democracy in any uh, in a proper democracy, you would have meritocracy. Meritocracy is very simple. If you you have an opening for a certain position, let's say you uh, let's say the Indian Army needs ten thousand new soldiers, right? Let's say the Indian Army, the Indian Armed Forces, are in need of ten thousand new soldiers. So, what is meritocracy in this case? Uh, what kind of so? I mean. And let's say a hundred thousand individuals apply for these openings of the ten thousand. So one out of ten has to be selected, right? Because a hundred thousand have applied, but only ten thousand posts are available. So then you are going to have an examination, fitness training, firearms training, and all that, and you are going to evaluate their skills and their aptitude and their potential. And then you are supposed to choose the best ten thousand out of those hundred thousand. That is called meritocracy. Okay, now on what basis will you choose the best soldiers, the best candidates based on how physically fit and strong they are? A soldier's job is to undergo hardships. The soldier's job is not to give up his life or for the, for the country. It is to ensure that the enemy has to give up his life for his country. So these are the factors that uh, are to be considered and the soldiers have to be efficient killing machines. They have to be ruthless. They have to be able to be calm under pressure, under stress and so on. So there are certain mental factors that have to be considered, physical factors that have to be considered. What sort of endurance does a person have? What sort of stamina does he have? How fast can he run and, and so on and so forth? Is he a good marksman? Is he cold-minded enough to be able to kill the enemy when it's required and so on. So there is, there's a number of factors you have to consider and you have to pick up the 10,000 best soldiers, the 10,000 10, best candidates out of 100,000. That is called meritocracy. Now, if you start considering factors like what quota do they fall under, is it a minority quota? Is it a CST quota? Is it some other reservation quota? That destroys the entire concept of meritocracy. Because then it doesn't matter whether you're good or not at your job. What really matters is what quota you belong to. And that is the death of meritocracy. And that is what you see in India's education system, in India's governance system, in all the job applications in the government. And I'm not sure if it's there in the armed forces also, but it should not be. The entire country, if it has to do well, should be on the basis of merit only. The person who is best suited for the job should be given the job. Whether you are a cop, whether you are a government officer, whether you are a judge, whether you are a soldier, even while in, in promotions, the best have to be promoted, not the most politically connected and so on. So that is the difference between meritocracy and, and whatever else it is. Whatever else it is, is called corruption. 
and India system is deeply corrupt because there is no concept of meritocracy. Whether it is entry into the IITs or any uh, Indian government-run uh, education institutions, whether it is entry into into the government services, into the uh, bureaucracy or whatever else, and so on and so forth. So that is what is the exact opposite of meritocracy and a system in which you have complete transparency and complete meritocracy is going to give you the best possible workers the best possible leaders and the uh, and the country will do well and a system in which you don't have this is going to produce mediocrity and decay and corruption which is what you see in india today so that is the difference between meritocracy and whatever else and corruption and anti-meritocracy. So it is very much a part of democracy. In India's democracy, we don't have it. So India's democracy is deeply flawed and it is not really a democracy. See, it is certainly possible. It is certainly possible. If you see the Mongol Empire, it came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere in just 20-30 years. One man, Chinggis Khan, built an empire out of nothing and it was so successful because it was purely meritocratic. So it's possible. It is certainly possible. And it should be implemented if you want your country, your civilization, your culture to do well. Right, let's take some more questions. Shrikant says, can India beat the Chinese economy in the long run? Historically, over the past five, how long has China existed? Three thousand, three and a half thousand years? Historically, throughout the entire duration of China's existence as a culture and a civilization, India's economy has been bigger than China's economy. It's only in the past 500 or so years that India went down. It uh, decayed because it was smashed into pieces by the British occupiers. And before that, the Turkic occupiers of India, who plundered and destroyed India. And, uh, uh, you know, yeah, that's what happened. So India's historical position has been at the top of the world's economic hierarchy. India has always been, throughout, throughout its history, the largest, the greatest, the most prosperous economy in the world. China has historically, ever, ever since it has existed in the past three and a half thousand years or so, China has historically been number two. Can India beat the Chinese economy in the long run? Well, it is in our blood and in our nature to be number one. Right now, we are going through a bad phase. It takes a little bit of time. When I say a little bit of time, I mean 50 to 100 years. So don't expect this to happen overnight. Hopefully in our lifetimes, hopefully in the next 20, 30 years, I would like to see India surpass China. It is very much, very much possible. India has all the potential in the world. India needs the right leadership. Hopefully we are on the right track. So it is very much, very much possible. Okay, let's uh, let's take some more questions. Hello, curious minds. Hello, hello. It's nice to see all the curious minds. Okay, some questions are being repeated. Mm -hmm. Okay, some more question. There's a guy, uh, Manish says, there's a guy who says Ram Setu being man-made doesn't prove, Rama, doesn't prove Ramayana to be true with the argument that New York is real doesn't mean that Spider-Man exists. 
well there's no point even arguing with such people right see the thing is this in the ramayan there is a very specific depiction in, in the spiderman comics there is no depiction of new york city being built right <laughs> spiderman exists in this fictitious new york or whatever place it is in the spiderman mythos in the spiderman mythology there is no depiction of people getting together and building new york city if that was the case then the spiderman comics would prove that it was real because new york ex- exists and so on but in the ramayan there is a very clear specific detailed depiction of the how this bridge was built between india and sri lanka and it was all this time considered to be a myth but now it it very much appears that it's a man made a uh, man made structure i think the indian government has now shown some interest in i think some archaeological work is being done i i believe which will conclusively prove it one way or the other what is the origin of the rama setu bridge so let us wait for a little bit of time if it is man made then where else is it shown in the entire history of the world where else is it depicted as being built only in one place in the ramayan so that's what it is so this is a logical logical fallacy fallacy that is being done we are putting the cart before the horse you know so there's no point arguing with such people or even debating such people who don't understand what logic is bhanu prakash shukla has been asking me a question for a very long time okay i'm glad i saw it this time this is about nilesh oak's research paper like the timings of the mahabharata ramayana he depicted the astronomical astronomical facts over there what's your take my take is very simple nilesh oak has done an enormous amount of work i think he has invested 10 or 20 years in this that that is incredibly commendable to, uh, to invest such a large part of your life in doing this work and he has come up with some dates of the ramayan and the mahabharat my point is very simple i really appreciate the work he has done it needs to be independently verified and proven by other teams of researchers until this happens one cannot claim that this is 100% correct like i said albert einstein's theory of relativity which he put forth in 1915 was completely ignored until it was proven by experimental physicists about 5 or 6 years later i think it was in 1920 or 21 that it was actually proven to be correct one of his predictions the bending of light around large objects was experimentally proven and that's when he became a celebrity that's when the theory of relativity was actually accepted and therefore any such claim that is put forth see even albert einstein toiled away alone okay for for about for about an entire decade to come up with this theory of relativity it was a labor of love it was a very lonely effort and yet it was not accepted until it was properly proven by experimental physicists by others others than him therefore i really appreciate what mr nileshok has done i really commend the effort he has put in but to be accepted his work has to be independently corroborated by at least one or two other teams of researchers the entire uh, all the calculations all the claims all the all the various claims that he has made they all need to be proven and corroborated that is the scientific process that is the scientific process it's the it's the only way one can actually accept a new claim that has been made because his work is scientific work it's based on astronomy so it has to be proven independently by by other researchers so that is my take on this
I really appreciate the work he's done. If it is proven to be correct, if it is proven to be correct by independent researchers, I think he deserves a Padma Award for what he has done. But it has to be independently verified by other researchers. Until that time, we cannot make the claim that this has been proven. Right? It is, as of now, just a claim. It is not proven. I hope that answers the question. Okay, uh, some questions are being asked multiple times. Please don't do that. Please ask your question only once. Okay, it, otherwise it's like spam. It's not fun. Right, let's see some more questions. Let us see some more questions. Thanos. Thanos asks, okay, Thanos is talking to Raghav Sharma. If you see Europe, everyone speaks different languages. Yet when it comes to Western civilizational supremacy, all of them unite under one roof. I wonder why that can't happen in India. It can happen in India if there's a good, if there's a strong enough leadership. It can happen. It can certainly happen. It has happened in the past. India has been unified, an entire subcontinent-sized civilization unified under one leadership multiple times. It can once again happen in the future. One needs to unify a country as large as India, which is as big as the European Union, even larger when it comes to population. When it comes to unifying that so that a, a civilization of that size, you need a once in a thousand years kind of leader. So that is what we wait for. That's what we await. We need that kind of leadership who can who can bend the entire country to his or her will and unify the civilization once again after a thousand years. The last time it happened was, well, to some extent it happened under the great Raj Raj and Rajendra Chola, the Chola dynasty, who unified southern India with the entirety of Southeast Asia all the way to the Philippines under one cultural and civilizational umbrella. Before that, it happened during uh, the, the Gupta Empire, uh, Samudra Gupta, etc. I think the Karkotas, Lalita Ditya Muktapida also did that sort of thing. You had Amogavarsha, who an emperor who lived for about, who ruled for about 60 plus years, who unified a large part of India. You had Kanishka the Great, who unified much of India and much of Central Asia as well. And before that, you had the Mauryan dynasty, Chandragupta Maurya, etc., who unified India. So we need that sort of leadership. Mediocre little politicians are not going to unify India. I am not pointing my fingers at any specific individual when I say mediocre politicians. 99% of politicians are mediocre. We do have some very good leaders in this country. The question is, how great are they, are they willing to be? So let's see. Let's wait and watch. I think that we are doing better than before, much better than before. But one must always demand more from one's leaders. So it's all about leadership. It is certainly possible. Right. Let's take some more questions. Okay. Some people are asking 17 questions in one. <laughs> How do I answer that? Just ask me one question each and then that we will take it that way. Right. Fact Tuber asks, did Indians have a sense of Indianness? If yes, then why didn't the Gurjara, Palas, Rashtrakutas liberate Sindh from the Arabs? 
rather than fighting with each other for kanoj please answer it's all about the leadership there there is there has always been a sense of indianness whether you go to the east of india bengal vanga pradesh vangadesh whether you go to kalinga whether you go to the southern parts of india the cholas the pandyas the cheras etc the gangas whether you go north east west wherever they we have always had one overarching culture one overarching civilizational language we have a lot of diversity a lot of plurality our culture manifests itself in so many different ways and yet it is just one overarching culture which you see even across south east asia the same traditions the same culture until recently so yes there has always been a sense of indianness so why didn't the gurjaras the palas rashtrakutas etc liberate sindh from arabs rather than fighting for kanauj because they were small mediocre kings there was no great king who could unify the, the country and the civilization the way the mauryas did it the way kanishka the great did, did the way the guptas did the way the cholas did and so on they were not that great in terms of leadership right when one great leader emerges he or she is capable of unifying the entire country imagine in the 13th century the state of mongolia a bunch of ragtag nomadic tribes fighting each other for the scraps of the land and then one boy was born there whose name was tebujin he grew up and unified the entire country and conquered more than half the world it happened in 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 a matter of a few decades in just 20 22 23 years this man chingis conquered more territory then more than 30 roman empires could do in 300 years so it's possible when you have that sort of leadership anything is possible so at this time that you are talking about when the gurjaras palas and rashtrakutas and various other little mediocre kings were fighting for small territories it's because they were mediocre kings they were mediocre leaders had there been a great leader we would have been free of the arabs and sindh would have been well indianized all over again and saved from the invaders so that's that's the thing it's all about leadership it's always about leadership when you have the right right leadership when you have strong enough leadership everything is possible nothing is impossible but when you have mediocre leaders when you have leaders who believe in in rent seeking and fighting for little scraps that's when the country goes to hell like it has been in the past millennium the past 1000 years of humiliation okay some more questions shubham joshi says ambedkar wrote that geeta was copied from buddhist texts is it true i am not aware of see listen i have not really studied mr ambedkar i don't know what he has written so i can't answer this question really and uh, i so i'm not sure if he actually wrote this or did not write it if anybody has made the claim that the gita was copied from buddhist text it is absolute utter nonsense okay nefarious human asks would chennai super kings have won the indian premier league had they played during the vedic period i think there would have been other teams during the vedic period there would have been hastinapur united there would have been uh, uh let me see hastinapur united indraprastha uh, tuskers would have been there hastinapur tuskers hastinapur means the city 
of elephants, right? So Hastinapur, Tuskers, Indra, Indraprasth United. There would have been uh, Vanga, the, the a team from Vanga Pradesh also, and many, many other teams. So I'm not sure the Chennai Super Kings would have had the ammunition and the firepower given their team of old guys to actually have won, won the IPL. And of course, you would have had different weapons. The Brahmastra and other things would come into play, you know. So I don't think Chennai Super Kings would have won the IPL had they played during the Vedic period. It would have been a very different kind of tournament at the time. So yeah, good question. Good question. Aniket asks, how is mathematics used in deriving scientific theories? So then to answer that, I have to explain what is mathematics. See, mathematics is the language of physics. Mathematics expresses the patterns and regularities of nature in an abstract language, in the most concise form possible. So it expresses the regularities and patterns that we find throughout nature. And it is a property of the entire universe. And therefore, using mathematics, sitting right here in my study room, I can derive the laws that govern the entire universe if I am intelligent enough to do that, using simply mathematics. So that is the power of mathematics. So what you do is you do first principles thinking, right? You observe the universe and based on the observations, you try to write down the regularities and patterns that you observe. And that eventually takes the form of fundamental physical laws. And then you use those laws to derive other, uh, to, to, to derive other regularities and patterns of nature and to find the uh, find what is common between certain laws for instance we have the one upon r uh, pattern that exists not only in gravitation but also in electromagnetism and so on and so on and so forth so that is the reason why mathematics is an integral central part of physics you cannot have physics i mean you can try to express the regularities and patterns of nature in the form of words but then it would take paragraphs and pages to describe what can be described in just one line using mathematics right and again if you use language then it is imprecise mathematics is completely precise so that is what mathematics is and that is why it is used in deriving scientific theories because it expresses patterns and regularities of nature that are found throughout the universe not only not just on our planet so that's how we are able to discover new physics and new laws of nature and so on and so forth using simply mathematics and the power of observational data Right, let's see some more questions. Uh, Ashish says, I love physics. It seems very interesting, but I don't like doing numericals. What should I do? See, you cannot do physics without mathematics. Mathematics is at the core of physics. It is the language of physics. 
you simply cannot progress beyond a certain stage in physics if you don't do mathematics and i understand that you don't like doing numericals because i am sure that you had very bad teachers who did not teach you mathematics properly this is the story with every single student in india most indian students they end up hating mathematics because their teachers are so incompetent and because they are not taught mathematics properly during the foundational stages if you don't understand basic arithmetic properly if you're not taught basic arithmetic properly then you can never learn higher mathematics like algebra trigonometry geometry calculus and so on and so forth right it's impossible if the foundation of the building is bad then you simply can't progress further and the building crumbles so i understand why you don't like doing numericals uh, and problems and all that because you you probably had you very likely had very poor teachers so if you really want to pursue physics seriously then you need to revisit your mathematical knowledge go back to the mathematics of your school stage find out where your deficiencies are and just just uh, iron them out by doing easier problems and so on mathematics is actually extraordinarily simple it's incredibly sim- simple if you are taught properly step by step it's the simplest thing easiest thing in the world if you understand the fundamentals then you can easily make the progress to higher stages so that's the deal you cannot progress in physics without being good at math so that's the only option you have if you really want to take it seriously all right let's take some more question questions akshay says how are the mossad of israel so fearless carrying out assassinations in other countries well the mossad see israel is a very different kind of country compared to india india um, israel has a very uh, it is in a very interesting position in uh, western asia it's on the eastern coast of the mediterranean sea it is surrounded on all sides by enemy countries also uh, let's take a look at the look at the map shall we let's take a look at the map and see exactly where it is because if you see the map then you will understand what the deal is so you know what geography plays a very significant and very important role in geopolitics and in shaping a nation's uh, a nation's psyche and ethos and all that so let's take a look at the map here is the map so this here is israel as you can see to the south you have egypt to the west you have jordan over here you to to the east you have jordan sorry over here you have saudi arabia to the northeast you have syria to the north you have lebanon nearby you have turkey and so on and so forth all enemy countries and uh, even if you go further east you have iran and then you have pakistan etc all of these countries wish to see israel wiped off the map they are all enemies they want to see israel destroyed dead and buried and yet israel has has uh, managed to not just survive they have managed to thrive so it's because the country is always has always been in this precarious position they have been attacked a number of times they have faced physical extinction physical destruction a number of times they know that uh, their survival is 
always in danger and that's why they have a very peculiar attitude they have this they have the shin bet which is the internal security apparatus and then they have the mossad which is an, which is a colloquial informal informal term which is the external intelligence apparatus and uh, agency so the mossad its its uh, objective is to promote and further in uh, israel's national interests beyond the boundaries of israel by carrying out covert operations assassinations when it's required and ensuring that israel's enemies are targeted wherever they are in the world and this is possible only if the political class of israel supports this sort of activity and the political class in israel has always been very nationalistic and it's always been very clear about the fact that they should do this another country which is like this is iran which does carry out lots of clandestine activities way beyond iran's political boundaries iran carries out uh, uh, various activities within the territory of iraq in syria as well in uh, in uh, yemen i believe in afghanistan too and so on so iran also does a lot of uh, such clandestine activities beyond its boundaries uh, so so these are two countries that do that israel of course does it globally they have even uh, captured former nazis from south america from argentina adolf eichmann was captured in argentina in the 1960s he was kidnapped and brought all the way to israel by the mossad where he was uh, well where he underwent a trial and he was eventually executed for his crimes against humanity so the reason why the mossad is able to do all this is because they have full complete political support they are given all the resources they need and because israel also has a very good startup ecosystem all the latest technology and so on which enables them to carry out these operations with greater ease so it's all about the mindset now when it comes to india we don't carry out assassinations abroad of, of our enemies abroad india has plenty of enemies outside of india in pakistan and other countries as well india has never ever taken any action against them that we know of at least not in the way the israelis or the iranians do and even within india there are so many anti national activities happening and nothing is i mean much of it just goes on with a great deal of impudence so india is a very different country compared to israel india is nowhere near as ruthless in pursuing its national interest in comparison with israel so the reason why the mossad is so fearless and so capable is that it has complete the complete support of the political class so that's the main reason right let's take some more interesting questions <laughs> aniket says can mathematics be used to communicate verbally well only if everybody understands mathematics and that too you cannot convey certain things like emotions and things like that mathematically there's no mathematics to to there's no equation that that uh, represents various emotions and feelings and, and and so on and so forth so that's why we need verbal speech that's why we need language which is much more evocative and uh, which has much more nuance it is a whole different uh, thing that is being communicated right 
So when you're talking about the laws of nature, human language doesn't work. You have to use mathematics. But when it comes to communication in the human sphere, in in societal, uh, in the societal sense, etc., mathematics simply cannot work. So that's the thing, because see, mathematics, like I said, it expresses the patterns and regularities of nature. It cannot express the patterns and regularities of human emotions and social social uh, connections and all that because th- th- these things are very subjective there are no patterns there humans are very irrational from time to time many of us us are e- quite irrational there may be patterns etc but those patterns we have never been able to decipher right so unfortunately mathematics doesn't work in that case it only works when it comes to the laws of nature not to the not when it comes to to the laws of interpersonal communication and human nature and consciousness and all that. That is a totally different thing, which we still don't understand. Right. All right, let's take some more questions. Venkata Sai asks, what can replace democracy in Bharat? Something which is native, what type of governance it should be? And when does the partitioned land of Bharat reunite? Okay. A number of questions. Let me answer democracy. Democracy originated in Bharat. It originated in the Indian subcontinent. It is very well recorded. It um, During the Mahajanapada era, we had a hybrid form of democracy. We had kings and emperors, but they were duty-bound. They were dharma-bound to, to, to obey the will of the people and the will of their, gov- of their advisory council and so on. So the advisory council and the people could override the decision of a king or an emperor or a queen. That's how it was during the Mahajanapada Republican era. And even during the time of Lord Krishna, during the Mahabharata era, you had a similar system, which was a democratic system, right? So democracy emerged out of India. It is native to India. Today's democracy is nonsense. It is a fake form of democracy. It is a, it is a, illusory democracy. The form of democracy that we follow today is Western liberal democracy, the Westminster system of parliamentary democracy, which emerged, which which evolved on a small island in the, in the Atlantic Ocean, England, right? It is suited to that country, to that small island of with a population of a few million people. And in, in the context, in the socio-political context that it evolved in, India is a whole different ball game. It is a subcontinent-sized civilization. A system that is suited for a small island is not suitable for India. And yet it has been force, forcefully imposed upon India. And you can see the result. Look at the way the country has been governed right now. Look at the consequences. Look at where we find ourselves today. India has reached nowhere near the potential it had. We have had 70 years since independence and see what this specific form of democracy, so-called democracy, has done to the country. India is currently a corrupt, misgoverned, third world country, a very poor nation. Our population is larger than the entire continent of Africa. Our per capita GDP is lower than that of Bangladesh. I am not blaming the current government for this. It is something that has happened over the past 70 years. It is the fault of the system, the, the governance system we have copied from the West, the constitution we have copied from the West, and the laws which were written by the British and which we still follow. It is this colonial system that has brought us to where we are. So this 
fake form of democracy is not suitable for india we need to revisit our historical past our civilizational eras when we were doing when we were at the highest levels of prosperity and so on and we need to try and replicate some of that and at least be inspired from some of that and find ways of replicating such a system of governance in the 21st century so i we should not try to blindly follow or emulate what was there in the past that was several thousand years ago today we are in the 21st century if we do bring uh, try to bring such a system back it has to be suitable it has to be uh, modified in a way that it uh, can work in the 21st century with all the technology and all that that we have so that is what hopefully we need to do that's the kind of governance governance system we that is suitable for india a constitution that is not foreign not western but indian in its nature in its characteristics it is based on indian civilizational and cultural values not western values not this nonsense of secularism and so on right and the other question is when will the partitioned land of bharat reunite it will reunite when there is a great great leader who is capable of reuniting the country and the civilization so it's not going to happen in the next 50 years or 100 years because there's too much cultural and religious differences now in the lands that we have lost so it's a long term project but it will happen eventually if we if we ensure that the right kind of leadership is allowed to rise to the top of the country okay let's take more questions isha asks isha says my my sister is a history teacher how can she make children learn real indian history while the books teach complete shit well as a teacher unfortunately your sister is duty bound to teach whatever garbage the textbooks contain that is the contract that is her job and if she tries to teach something else then she is going to be in trouble so what can i say <laughs> isha your sister will have to teach what is in the in the history textbooks what she can do is try and uh, motivate the children to look beyond the textbooks that's what she can do now that's very hard of course because the, the in india's education system children have very little spare time they have so many subjects to study so much to memorize blindly so much homework to do then they have tuition classes coaching classes they barely get to sleep eight hours so how will t- how will children find the time when they don't even get time to play in a playground how will they find the time to read some additional history so that's the great unfortunate challenge that we have in this country today uh, the children in this country are put under back breaking stress so much homework so much school work there's hardly any time to be a child to be a kid and just play and enjoy your life no you can't so what can i say <laughs> that's where we are today and they said that they are reforming the education system what is it called nep or something what absolute nonsense we need real reforms children should not be made to study more than 3 4 hours a day that's enough instead of that they are studying all day now 
So that's the status of the Indian education system. What I would say is that if she can somehow find a way to motivate the children to to study some history, to look at some documentaries, to read some books apart from what they learn in class, in school, then maybe they'll be able to learn some of the real history of India. That's that's the best that we can do in the situation we are in right now. But yeah, good question. Aryan Kumar says, what if Dara Shuko was emperor instead of Aurangzeb? Well, it's a hypothetical question. Maybe he would have been a better person. I think Aurangzeb was one of, was one of the one of the worst tyrants to ever rule this country, one of the greatest monsters to have existed anywhere in the world in the past 1,000 years. As bad as the European conquerors of, of the Americas, the kind of genocide they did there. Even the New York Times agrees that uh, Aurangzeb killed Italy, how many? Several million people in India. And whatever numbers they have given, we have to actually multiply that by 10 to come at the real figures. So I think they said the New York Times estimates that Aurangzeb was responsible for the genocide of about 5 million Indians, I think. So if you multiply that by 10 and you reach a a number, uh, a figure of 50 million Indians, so that must be the real figure actually. So if Darashiko was emperor instead of Aurangzeb, that most likely would not have happened. I think he was, I think Aurangzeb considered Darashiko to be a kafir because he was very interested in Indian culture. He learned Sanskrit. He translated translated the either the Ramayan or the Mahabharat or both perhaps into Persian from Sanskrit. So he was a scholarly person. He wanted, he was very interested in Indian language, culture, religion and so on. And that's why Aurangzeb hated him so much. And that's why he had him murdered in such a cruel fashion and so on. If Darashuko was emperor instead of Aurangzeb, maybe India would have gone in a different direction, perhaps. But maybe he would not have been as ruthless a ruler as Aurangzeb. And maybe, maybe the Marathas would have would have reconquered India from the Turks earlier, perhaps, had Darashiko been in power. So it's a hypothetical question. Maybe India would have gone in a different, better direction. Had he been the emperor, maybe something else would have happened. We can't really tell. But at least that massacre, that genocide that Aurangzeb carried out would not have happened. So that would be one of the most positive aspects had Darashiko prevailed instead of Aurangzeb. All right. More questions. Okay, I had I had some questions which I picked up from the comments. Let me take a few of those. A few of those questions. Let me take a few of those. Okay, I'll I'll need to remove this. All right. Okay, let me just take this question. Atharva says, can we restore the monarchy of Nepal? How is a Hindu monarchy different from a Christian monarchy in Europe or Muslim monarchies in the Middle East? How will it be helpful for India? Look, Nepal is today a separate country. It is not part of India. So we in India cannot restore the monarchy of Nepal. The Nepalese people will have to do it if they so wish. Now it looks, it seems to me that the people of Nepal are now very much pro-communist. The education system has, 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 has put certain ideas in the minds of the younger people. And uh, I, 
I get the feeling that the younger generations, the newer generation, the new youngsters who you see online, they seem to be very much anti-India, anti-Hindu, some of them very much pro-China and so forth. So it looks quite difficult for that sort of thing to emerge from Nepal itself, unless there is a significant percentage of Nepal's population that we are not aware of that is in favor of restoring the monarchy or restoring uh, Hindu rule in Nepal. But the communists hold all the power. They hold the power of the state, the guns, everything. So it's very hard to do that. It would be very hard to do that. How is a Hindu monarchy different from a Christian monarchy or a Muslim monarchy? Well, the entire culture is different. The value system is different. The system of governance is different. It is all ruled and uh, governed by the principles and the values of, of, of Dharma, of the Dharmic culture. And that's, that's why the entire value system is different. And the entire environment and culture is different, right? And so it would be more democratic, more uh, more compassionate, and so on. That's how Hindu monarchies are different from various Abrahamic systems of governance. Now, if there's a Hindu monarchy in Nepal, how will it be helpful for India? Well, if there's a Hindu monarchy, they would be more inclined to resisting the Chinese attempts to to bring Nepal into China's uh, geopolitical sphere. So in that way, it would be helpful for Nepal, for, for India, and it would be, would be good for the people of Nepal as well. Now, it is India itself, during Mr. Rajiv Gandhi's time, that it is India that took steps, clandestine covered steps, to, to make the institution of, of monarchy in Nepal weaker and weaker and eventually the communists were were allowed to take over with help from the Indian government. So it is India itself, India's secular government that destroyed Nepal's Hindu monarchy. So that's how it is. That's how it went. Okay, let me take a question from the comments. So Star Sellers says, when scientists studied and reconstructed the DNA of King Tutankhamun in Egypt, it was found that he carried the R1B haplogroup. As we know, R1B branched out of R1A haplogroup and the Yamnaya tribe which carried R1B haplogroup invaded Europe and spread that haplogroup across Europe. It's also known that the Egyptian pharaohs practiced inbreeding to keep the royal blood pure. So how can it be possible for King Tut to have R1B haplogroup? Is it possible that the R1A haplogroup originated in Africa and then, then out of Africa migration brought it to India? Okay, that's a whole lot of questions. Yes, it is true that this, this king, this pharaoh, Tutankhamun, had the R1B haplogroup. The R1B haplogroup was brought into Europe by the Yamnaya invaders who rampaged across Europe about 5,000 or 4,500 years ago. They were Indian in origin. R1B did not branch out of R1A. R1B is a sister lineage of R1A. R1B and R1A are daughter lineages of R1. R1 is a daughter lineage of R. And they are all eventually uh, descendant lineages of the haplogroup F, which is the original haplogroup, the parent haplogroup of more than 90% of non-African males across the world. And the haplogroup F originated in India. So R1A, R1B did not originate in Africa. They originated in India. And now how did 
this guy Tutankhamun happened to have the R1B haplogroup. So that's an interesting question, and that's not been uh, that that mystery has not been resolved yet. What is clear is that he has a haplogroup, a patrilineal lineage that originated in India. Now, how did it reach there? How did it enter into Egypt? I think today R1B is extremely rare in Egypt. Less than 1% or 2% of the population would have this haplogroup in Egypt. And yet, Egypt, Egypt's ancient royalty had this patrilineal lineage, which means that they were descended from a male who once lived in India, but between 18 and 26 or so thousand years before today. So, isn't that interesting? We don't know really why or how come this haplogroup ended up in, in Egypt's royalty. So that is a question that has not been answered yet. I think it is something that researchers are looking into. But as of today, we don't have the answer. But interesting, very interesting question. Right. Okay, this is by, this is by LKJK, whatever that is. What are your views on the Nasadiya Sukta of the Rig Veda? Don't you think that the Nasadiya Sukta is blasphemous? <laughs> as it doubts the capability of God because that sukta essentially says that even God does not know everything. Wow. <laughs> Good question. Let Okay, what is the Nasadiya Sukta? It is the creation hymn in the Rig Veda. So the Rig Veda is the oldest known literature in human history. It is the foundational text of India's civilization. What we call Hinduism and Dharma Dharma originates from the Rig Veda, which is the oldest text in the Dharmic world, in the entire human world. So what is the Nasadeya Sukta? Let me just share the screen with you. Now, I have, I have said this before, I will say it again. Wikipedia is not a reliable source of information. I am doing this just for convenience for this once, but please do not trust Wikipedia. In this case, I have seen this and it, it seems to be fine. So this is the Nasadiya Sukta and here's the translation. Let us begin with the first stanza or paragraph. Okay, so it 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 is it it concerns the origin of the universe, the creation of the universe. This particular hymn deals with the creation of the universe, with the question of where did the universe come from, who created it. So it says that in the beginning, even non-existence was not there and neither was existence. There was no air, there was no space. What covered it? Where was it? In whose keeping? Was there then cosmic fluid in depths unfathomed? There was neither death, uh, death nor immortality. There was neither night or day. The one breathed windlessly and self-sustaining. There was that one then and there was no other. There was only darkness wrapped in darkness. Only unillumined cosmic water and so on and so forth. And then it says, after all, who knows and who can say where did it all come from and how did creation happen? The gods themselves are later than creation. So who knows truly from where it has arisen? From where did creation have its origin? 
the creator whether he made it or maybe he did not the creator who surveys it from the highest heaven he knows or maybe even he does not know so this is the nasadiya sukta it talks about creation it asks the question see many people have asked me this question in the past what was there before the big bang what caused the big bang isn't it the nasadiya sukta asks the same questions who caused creation the creation of the universe where did this creation happen from what was there before the big bang before the creation of the universe this singularity that we talk about where was it in what was it contained and so on and so forth these are the same questions that are asked in the nasadiya sukta it says that even the gods came after the creation of the universe because gods are part of the universe so who created the universe and it doesn't answer the question it simply raises the questions and it says even the gods don't know even the gods came later this is a very skeptical very agnostic portion a very agnostic view a very scientific view in a sense because science is all about agnosticism and skepticism we don't know what really happened right we can't tell and that is the creation hymn of the rigveda so yes it does raise into question whether god exists or not who is god who create who is the creator of the universe and it says we don't know we don't know it it doesn't give you an answer so that's why uh, the question has been asked that is this blasphemous as it doubts the capability of god or the existence of god so he, what is blasphemy what is the definition of blasphemy the definition of blasphemy is that you deny the existence of god you deny the truth that is contained in the one book and in the words of your prophet so blasphemy is an abrahamic concept when you say that what the so called prophet has said is wrong you are being blasphemous when you deny the truth of what is written in that one book then you are doing blasphemy when you say that this god that you are supposed to pray to doesn't exist you are doing blasphemy now in the dharmic world there is no such thing as blasphemy because the foundational text of dharma the rigveda is itself expressing an agnostic view that we don't know about creation we don't know who created the universe we don't know who god is so if there is a holy text in hinduism there are so many holy texts there are so many upanishads and puranas and vedas and such an enormous corpus of literature but among all of this the holiest of the texts is the rigveda so if you were to deny what is in the rigveda that is blasphemy the rigveda cannot be a blasphemous text it is the holiest of texts and again like i said there is no such thing as blasphemy in hinduism in dharma for instance in the uh, dharmic uh, philosophies there are many philosophies that question the existence of god charvaka philosophy for instance it says that perception is the only valid source of knowledge the material world is the only reality and god is a myth right charvaka says that it is part of dharma jaina philosophy also rejects the existence of god both the philosophy also exists uh, also rejects the existence of god it says that soul does exist but god doesn't exist the nyaya philosophy says that god exists it also says atma exists vaisheshik philosophy says that god exists right the sankhya philosophy 
doesn't see any need for God. It says there are two realities, Purush and Prakriti. The yoga philosophy is a theistic Sankhya. It says that God exists. The Mimansa philosophy says there is no supreme soul or creator God. It is very skeptical again. And the Vedanta philosophy, which arises from the Upanishads, says that there is a supreme person who permeates the entire universe and yet remains beyond it. So that kind of echoes the Nasadiya Sukta. So there are so many different views in Dharma. There is no blasphemy if you say that God doesn't exist or if you question the origin of the universe or the existence of God. If you are skeptical, you have the right to be skeptical. You will not be thrown off a building. So essentially what I would like to say is that the answer is that there is no such thing as blasphemy in Hinduism. All opinions are equally valid. All opinions are respected. You may believe in atheism. Fine, that's your life. Go on and live it. That's how it is. There is no such thing as blasphemy. And the only thing I would consider to be blasphemous is questioning the Rig Veda. That itself is the highest. If if blasphemy, if anything is to be considered blasphemous in Hinduism, in Dharma, then that would be questioning the Rig Veda itself, which is what this question does actually. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Okay, next question. This is about the Kailash mountain. If this mountain was in Indian territory, I am sure there would have been many people ready to somehow climb it to hurt the sentiments of the Hindus and so on and so forth. So I had answered a question in the past in one of the previous episodes about Mount Kailash. It is currently illegally occupied by China. It is under Chinese territory, under Chinese occupation. And the Chinese Communist Party has prohibited anybody from trying to climb this mountain. So so this comment says that if the mountain was in Indian territory, I am sure there would have been many people ready to climb it somehow to hurt the sentiments of Hindus. I agree with you. If this mountain was in Indian territory, if it was administered by India, then there would have been many public interest legitations, litigations, litigations in the Supreme Court, PILs, etc., from various NGOs and secular organizations asking the Supreme Court to make it legal for people to climb the mountain. And there would have been many attempts to climb the mountain. And the Supreme Court would definitely have made it um, uh, would have definitely ordered the government to allow the climbing of this mountain. So you know what? It's so strange that I have to say this, but I agree with you. I think it is actually good that while India is ruled by the secular foreign constitution and the secular foreign governance system, machinery, while we are in under this condition, I think it's actually good, strangely, that the mountain is currently administered by China because they will not allow it to be climbed. If it was under Indian jurisdiction, by now all kinds of people would have tried climbing it. They would have defiled and desecrated this holy mountain. So I'm glad that's not happened. Isn't that ridiculous? The kind of country we are living in today. Incredible. Ashutosh says, I read an interesting article today that many of the corrupt African politicians their wealth is on par with people like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, etc. Any thoughts on this? Yes, I agree. I'm not, I haven't read the article, but it's very much possible that despite these countries being so extremely poor, their rulers, their politicians, they may have wealth on par with people like Bill Gates, Buffett, etc. And all of their wealth would be stashed away in 
in some European or Western countries. For instance, many of these Afghan politicians who escaped from Afghanistan when the Taliban took over, they are billionaires. They have incredible amounts of wealth stashed away in Western banks. Yes, Afghanistan shows that. And let's talk about India. I can guarantee that certain Indian politicians are actually the richest people in the world. I do not doubt that at all. I think some Indian politicians would have more wealth than the richest man in the world or woman in the world. I don't know who they would be. I mean, I'm sure you can guess. I'm sure even I can guess, but I am not taking any names. But I think India goes way beyond these African dictators and politicians. We are <laughs> the country that is the most corrupt in the world. And we have been so since independence and before that, since the foreign occupation of India. And much of this country's wealth has been amassed by these illicit, corrupt politicians. I think Indian politicians, some of them would be richer than the richest officially designed, designated person in the world. And that is terrible. Chetan, Jag Chetan Jagtap says, why didn't the British loot the treasure of the Anantapadmanabha Swami temple in Kerala, which is worth trillions of dollars in today's wealth? What prevented them from doing so? This is a very good question. In the past, my friends, I have been extremely critical, extremely critical of India's so-called princely states and these rulers. I have said that these people, these princely states and their petty little rulers, they were puppets of the British. And they did everything the British told them to do. They danced to the to the tunes of the British. Now, hear me out. The royal family of Travancore are one of the princely states. They, they were puppets of the British. They had a British political agent who told them what to do and they had to take orders from the British political agents and they had to allow the British, like every other princely state, to govern their kingdom and tax their people, like every other puppet kingdom in India. And yet, the royal family of Travancore did not ever allow the British to get wind of the fact that the Anantapadmanabha Swami temple is the richest temple in the history of humanity. The British never came to know about this. So this royal family, the royal family of Travancore, safeguarded the wealth of our ancestors, the wealth of our ancestors and people from God knows where had donated to this temple over thousands of years. And that's why this temple is currently the richest temple in the world worth trillions of dollars in today's wealth. And I am so glad that I recently heard that the Supreme Court of India, strangely enough and thankfully enough, I really appreciate it, they ruled that it is the Travancore royal family who will administer the wealth of this temple and nobody else, not the government of Kerala. If this wealth had fallen into the hands of the government, the secular government, end of story. Politicians will get richer. So, it is all thanks to this royal family, this princely royal family, Travancore royal family, that India was able, at least this particular uh, temple was saved from the depredations and the plunder of these rapacious British occupiers of India. It is all thanks to the Travancore royal family. 
so the moral of the story is that even though each of all of these princely states were puppets of the british some of them still had some integrity and some of them did not forget that the highest morality of the ruler is to serve the country and the people as per the great acharya vishnugupta chanakya so i am very grateful to the royal family of travancore i have the highest amount of respect and gratitude for them and now we go back to live questions okay some live questions let let's see what do we have inquisitive triangulator says is it true that present day hinduism is made up of 64 different religions in ancient bharat my teacher said this but i could not find it anywhere in the internet buffering well i don't know what your teacher is smoking i don't want any of that there is no such thing as religion in indian culture or civilization religion is a western abrahamic concept hinduism itself this name this term hinduism is a foreign term the correct term is dharma so india's culture is dharma it's 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 the dharmic culture the precepts of dharma is what makes up india's culture and it is now called hinduism there are no religions in hinduism there are different philosophies i just mentioned a number of these philosophies right charvaka mimamsa jaina bauddha nyaya vaisheshik vedanta yoga etc sankhya these are different philosophical schools of thought very some of them are very different from each other some of them are quite similar and so on and so forth and there are many more so these are not religions these are philosophical schools of thought and all of this combined including jaina and bauddha this all of this it makes up dharma the dharmic world view which is very diverse very pluralistic atheism is very much a part of it some of it is atheistic like jaina like bauddha like charvaka even uh, mimamsa is kind of like that it is kind of atheistic it says there is no supreme soul or creator god and then there is very much uh, like vedanta etc say very much believes in the existence of god and there are many other philosophical schools of thought that are not that uh, notable but did exist and so on so i would say there are there have been hundreds of different world views within the overarching umbrella of dharmic culture and dharmic philosophy and the dharmic world view so i don't know what 64 different religions your teacher was referring to but uh, that is certainly not the case india is a very very complex pluralistic civilization but at the very core of it is the four vedas and the oldest one is the rigveda and that's where everything springs for from springs forth from emerges from all right let's take some more questions surjit says what do you think would be the future of taiwan with china constantly threatening them and the great world powers including the us not supporting them what effects would it have on india well the chinese seem to be doing dress rehearsals for an eventual invasion of taiwan as we speak today in october 2021 recently there was a big large scale incursion of chinese aircraft into into taiwanese airspace 64 chinese aircraft 
intruded into Taiwanese airspace. So they are pushing the envelope of what is acceptable. They are pushing the boundary of what's acceptable. They are they are every day trying to create a new normal. And they seem to be uh, doing doing dry runs and test rehearsals of an eventual invasion of Taiwan. Yes, it is definitely it does definitely look like that is the case. Now, will the U.S. not support Taiwan? I think it's very unlikely that the U.S. will not support Taiwan. If the Chinese are allowed to take over Taiwan, then the U.S. will be seen as have lost a great amount of face and the entire American credibility will evaporate overnight if the Chinese are available, are, are allowed to take Taiwan over and conquer Taiwan without any resistance. So the Americans will not allow that to happen. If they allow it to happen, their entire credibility will evaporate overnight because they are seen, they have officially guaranteed uh, the security of other countries as well. South Korea, Japan, and other countries as well. So if the Americans don't safeguard the sovereignty of Taiwan, then the Japanese will no longer trust them, the South Koreans will no longer trust them. The entire global system that they have created, the so-called rules-based system, will overnight become untenable. So the Americans will have to support Taiwan. And the Chinese will not invade Taiwan until they are convinced until they are 100% sure of victory. And right now, they are not 100% sure of winning such an invasion. And that's why they are simply trying to push the envelope and keep on doing these incursions. I think an invasion of Taiwan could happen within the next 5 to 10 years. And what effect will it have on India? See, if China successfully invades Taiwan and reunifies, like it says, this renegade province like it claims it to be, then China will become way more powerful, right? With this great success and way more confident. And that will be bad for India because the the Chinese have been claiming Indian territory as well for a long time, including Arunachal Pradesh, which is a significant uh, landmass, isn't it? So it would be very bad for India. So what should India do if China invades Taiwan? India should immediately, without wasting a single hour, move militarily to secure Nepal, Bhutan, and Sri Lanka. How to do it? Well, the government should decide how to do it best. I think the military should be involved in this and there should be not a moment's delay if China decides to invade Taiwan because it would have a very bad effect on India. So India needs to be very proactive if, if such a thing happens, right? So there's your answer, Surjit. Thank you for the question. Okay, Tanvir Singh says, what are your views on China interfering in Afghanistan? Do you think it's going to fail like the USSR and the US as it is called the graveyard of empires? See, the British called Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. Uh, It has always been the place where European powers have failed, Western powers have failed. For instance, this guy, uh, the, the Greek fellow, what's his name? Alexander. He tried to invade India. Afghanistan was then part of India. The invasion was a disaster. It cost Alexander his life. So you could say that it ended up being the graveyard of the Greek empire of Alexander. Later on, the British tried to invade Afghanistan and subdue the locals. They failed disastrously. 
then the ussr tried that they also failed and that's why and, and now the americans have also withdrawn without achieving any real objective their their original objective was to defeat the taliban well the taliban are back in power so the greeks failed the soviets failed the british failed and the americans have failed so that's why it's called the graveyard of empires but it's only been the graveyard of western empires right because the turks did invade afghanistan gandhar and they did conquer it and to change the entire culture and demographics and religion of the place it was a hindu buddhist land it was an indian province an indian territory today it's a separate country so the turks succeeded in their invasion of afghanistan and they transformed and changed the, the, the demographics permanently right so the turkic empire did not fail now the chinese interference in afghanistan well that's what they have always wanted to do they want to expand their geopolitical footprint they want to turn afghanistan into one of the uh, transit points of their belt and road infrastructure right and they also want to extract the natural resources the minerals etc from afghanistan copper various rare earth minerals and so on and so forth and they also want uh, to ensure the stability of the taliban government government in afghanistan so that the taliban sentiment doesn't spill over into chinese occupied east turkestan or xinjiang so these are the reasons why the chinese are currently involved in afghanistan that's why they are uh, cooperating with the taliban government and, and helping them to in in a, in a variety of ways so that's what they are doing now will they succeed will they fail the americans would want them to fail uh, many geopolitical analysts have opined that uh, the american withdrawal from afghanistan is actually a trap for china they want china to get embroiled in the situation there and bogged in and eventually they want the chinese to suffer a disastrous defeat the way the ussr suffered some 30 or so years ago will that happen it all depends on the chinese what kind of a uh, playbook do they adopt the chinese are not stupid they are not foolish they know what the americans are planning they know what the americans are hoping for and they will have learned the lessons of history from the soviet disaster in afghanistan so it all depends on a variety of factors on a variety of factors the taliban government how long will they last what sort of relationship will they have with the pakistanis will pashtun nationalism override pakistan's attempts to uh, control the taliban uh, leadership and so on and so forth there's a lot there's a lot at stake here there's a lot of factors at play it's a complicated environment and the answers to these questions will be visible in the next 5 to 10 years it's right now too early to say what's going to happen but i see that uh, things will not quite go according to what the chinese have planned or even according to what the pakistanis have planned this could actually if certain cards are played right it could actually <coughs> excuse me it could potentially be the beginning of the end for pakistan it could so let's see how things go but uh, it's 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 very early days like in cricket in test matches on the first day you can't tell how things are going to go so we are in that sort of situation right now so it's too early to tell but yeah it is certainly a possibility that the chinese plans and the pakistanis plans will not quite go the way they want 
them to go. All right, let's see some more questions. Chaitanya says, what are my thoughts on the James Webb telescope? Will it be able to find life on other exoplanets? It is possible, yes. So I believe this telescope is going to be launched soon. It's been in the works for almost two decades, maybe more. Lots of delays, lots of delays. So this telescope is going to replace the Hubble Space Telescope. It's going to be several odd, I think at least an order of magnitude more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope. It's going to allow us to see much further, much deeper into the cosmos. And I believe that, yes, one could actually be able to view exoplanets and possibly find signatures of life therein. So, yes, it's going to be a significant leap forward when it comes to comes to observational astronomy, astrophysics and all that. It's going to be a very exciting period in time in this discipline. Will we be definitively able to find life on exoplanets? We can't say for sure. We will, I think, definitely be able to capture images of exoplanets much better than we are able to right now. We have already been able to take uh, visible light images of a planet around another star. Now this is going to be, this ability, this capability will be significantly augmented with the James Webb telescope. And uh, so we will have significantly more powerful capabilities. When it comes to life, it is still not known if we will be able to find life. But if life does exist, I think sooner or later we will find it. At least somewhere, as long as we look look enough. Right. Let's see some questions. Shivam Goyal says, Do you see a civil war happening in India in the coming 10 to 15 years? Looking at how the situation is shaping, it all depends on the on the government and the leadership. Uh, India is currently um, kind of a soft state. There are so many protests happening, and uh, law and order is a state issue. So you leave it to the state, and you know the, every state has its own agenda. So you, I'm not naming any specific state. I'm just saying overall, you know, a, a big picture comment. So yeah, there are many problems going on. NTCA protests and farmer, alleged farmer protests and various other things, various places, various parts of the country. Yeah, it, it does look like a civil war is a possibility. There is so much foreign infiltration into India. Rohingyas and Bangladeshis. I think there could be more than 10 million illegal Bangladeshis living in India with, with, with all the original paperwork like other cards and whatnot, you know. So it's a situation that's not very, very good. Will there be a civil war? It's a possibility. It all depends on the leadership and on the government. If you have the right leadership, there'll be, there will never be a civil war. If you have weak leadership, you will have civil wars everywhere. So it all depends on how strong the state is, the central government is and the local state also. It, India's federal system is very weak. There's too much power in the hands of each state. And uh, that is something that needs to be reformed, in my opinion. So this is something that needs to be taken up seriously with a certain amount of urgency, I would say. But I am helpful, I am hopeful that there will be no civil war. The the uh, the seeds 
of of a civil war are certainly there in the country they have been there since the 1940s since 1947 since the events of 1947 the seeds of a, a future civil war the seeds of a demand for more partitions are there in the country for sure so it all depends on the leadership what kind of leaders are we going to have in this country what kind of leader are we going to elect in this country which political party will we elect it all depends on that if we make the right choices we will, we will have good good leaders strong leaders and there won't be a civil war otherwise yes there could be a civil war like situation in the next 10 15 years 20 years possibly it all depends on these factors <laughs> arka darsis tell us something about love relationship breakups i think you're asking the wrong person that is i relationship advice and all that's that's not what i do uh that's not my specialty or 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 forte so i'm sure there are many other channels where you can ask these questions you know people who give dating advice relationship advice and so on breakups and all that so yeah i i am sorry i apologize but i don't have the answer to this this is not something that you know i i don't believe in giving personal advice to people your love life your relationship life etc is your personal it's it's a personal thing it's a private thing i don't interfere in people's lives i respect your privacy and uh, and i i don't like to give advice in in these personal matters you know so so sorry i apologize there are plenty of other people who will be very happy to give such advice right okay let's take a couple more questions okay let's see some more uh tanmay asks will a military coup take place in pakistan is there is a spat between bajwa the chief of the army and imran khan who is the uh, so called prime minister of pakistan uh, there's always the possibility of a military coup in pakistan it can happen anytime as long as the prime minister toes the line that the army tells him to he's going to be fine as long as he is useful to the army they will allow him to be in power and the moment he becomes intransigent or or uncooperative or a little bit too independent minded then he will be quietly replaced or not so quietly replaced so sometimes you may have a coup which doesn't even look like a coup it just looks like an election result for instance it, there is this widespread allegation in pakistan that the last election was rigged by the army and they ensured that imran khan came to power actually maybe nawaz sharif would have won if there was no rigging and so on and so forth it's an allegation that many people have made so is it possible it is certainly possible pakistan is not a democracy it's a it's an army run dictatorship that's what it is the prime minister is just for show just to keep the west mollified and just to keep up appearances imran khan has no real power he is just a puppet so it is possible the moment he becomes intransigent the moment he becomes a little too independent he will be dealt with by the army
Okay, Path Sharma says, My teacher said that Chanakya is fictional. There are no archaeological evidences of him. And he only appears on texts after Mauryan rule. Well, who wrote that book? The Arthashastra. There are so many f- historical figures for whom there is no archaeological evidence. I mean, Mr. Christ, Jesus Christ, is there any archaeological evidence of him? And yet every history teacher will talk to you about Mr. Christ. There are millions of books written about Jesus Christ. Right? But the same, but, but, and yet those rules don't apply to Indian historical figures. Right? So that, that's the thing, right? Uh, they will apply one set of rules to historical figures from the West, even those that don't that have never existed, but they'll apply a completely different set of rules to Indian historical figures. And India's teachers and academics are so brainwashed that we don't even need the Westerners to do this. We do it ourselves now. Our own teachers will come and raise questions about all of our historical figures. So my advice is just ignore such individuals. Uh, in India, we are taught that our teachers are our gurus and we have to worship them. Utter nonsense. Our teachers, your teacher will refuse to teach you the moment you stop paying him or her. Our teachers today are merely service providers. They are not gurus. There's an enormous difference between the gurus of old and today's teachers. Gurus used to impart education without asking for money in return. The Guru Dakshina was completely voluntary. It was only a once in a lifetime thing after you became successful and you became financially independent. Then you had the option of offering a one one time, once in a lifetime fee or payment, anything that you yourself wish to give. There was no monthly Guru Dakshina with 10% off if you pay annually and all that nonsense. Gurus were supported by the, by the state and not everybody called, could be called a guru. You, could, you, would be, you would be given the title of a guru only if you, if you rose to a certain amount of intellectual excellence. Right? So, so our, guru, our teachers are not gurus. They are merely service providers. Most of them are mediocre. Most of them know nothing about education or about anything about our history. Most of them are have very shallow and superficial knowledge. So my advice to all of you is that do not take your teachers seriously. You have to go through the education system to get your degrees. Go through it, get your degrees. Don't pay too much attention to what your teachers say. Don't take it very seriously when they raise questions about India's historical figures. And don't believe the history that you you are forced to memorize. Memorize it, write your answers in the exam, and then forget it. Then when you get the time, learn the real history of India, which is very different from what's being taught. All right, my friends, I think we have reached the end of today's session. It's nearly two hours. I can see lots more questions. I apologize to all of you. It's simply impossible for me to take all of your questions. My, uh, What I would like to say to, uh, to the new viewers, to the new subscribers, is that I have more than 500 videos on my channel, on this channel. It's all questions that I have answered in the past. And I have many of these live streams, 50 50 more live streams that I've done in the past. I have answered hundreds of questions in these live streams. So in case I am not able to answer your question, then please go go to my channel, use the search function and search for for the question that you have. Most likely it may already have been answered. 
so please go through the channel to look for questions if you have any right all right thank you so much guys girls ladies gentlemen friends thank you very much for the questions thank you for your viewership i will see you again tomorrow tomorrow is a video chat uh, episode so i will see you then until then thank you very much take care good day good night bye